Tinder is a popular dating app where each user swipes through a sequence of other users in order to find a match. Swiping left means you are not interested. Swiping right means you would like to connect with the person. The simple premise of Tinder has led to massive growth, and the app is now also used to discover new friends and create casual meetings. Every social network knows, if you're not growing, then you are dying. Growth is so important to Tinder that they have a large engineering organization devoted to the five facets that define their growth. New users, activation, retention, drop-off, and anti-spam. These five segments cover the entire Tinder user lifecycle, and there is a sub-team in charge of each of those five areas. No matter what kind of Tinder user you are, there are growth engineers focused on your experience, and that includes if you're a bot. Alex Ross is the director of engineering for the growth team at Tinder. His job requires a mix of data science, data engineering, psychology, and setting proper KPIs. A KPI is a key performance indicator. Each sub-team has KPIs that determine how well they are doing with their growth targets. And if the wrong KPI is set, then it can create bad incentives. For example, a growth team that is focused only on getting users to spend more time engaging with Tinder would have an incentive to create so-called dark patterns that trigger addiction. And Tinder's really not interested in that. They're interested in long-term, healthy engagement. If you like this episode, we've done many other shows about data science, about startups, about data engineering. You can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS to hear all of our old episodes, and you can discover new topics that might interest you. You can upvote the episodes that you like. You can get recommendations based on your listening history. And if you want to contribute to the Software Engineering Daily app ecosystem, you can go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We've got a number of projects to contribute to. We've got an Android app that we're hoping to get out the door soon. We've got a web front end, and we've got a back-end recommendation system. So whoever you are, there is a project you can contribute to if you are interested in that. But feel free to just consume the content. That's not a problem. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Alex Ross is the Director of Engineering for Growth at Tinder. Alex, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Before we talk about growth engineering itself, let's familiarize any of the listeners who don't know what Tinder is with the product. Describe what Tinder does. Yeah, definitely. So Tinder is a social discovery platform. It's pretty much the largest in the world. It's an iOS, Android, and recently it's now a web application for your desktop computer. The basic idea is that you create a profile, you go in, and our recommendation system sends you a list of people that we think that based on your you know demographics, we believe you will like. And this is presented in a card stack, as we call it. It's a bunch of faces, basically. And then you swipe left or right saying, you know, swipe left means you don't like that person. You don't want to talk to them. Swipe right means you do. And then if that person also swipes right on you, then you get a match. And it's kind of like an exciting, like double opt-in moment. And from there, you're able to converse with that person. And the typical intention is to, you know, meet with that person and hopefully make a connection that really changes your life. We're going to talk about growth engineering today, and certainly one of the metrics that any growth engineer wants to target is revenue or profit. How does Tinder make money? Great question. So Tinder has a premium subscription. Basically, within in-app purchase, you're able to upgrade your Tinder to get Tinder Plus, as we call it. We're also testing a second level of subscription called Tinder Gold. And basically, there's a subset of functionality within the application that gets unlocked if you have either of these subscriptions. And that abilities, you know, include, for example, passporting to a new location. Uh, Tinder generally only shows you people within a certain mile radius around you. You configure that radius. But with Passport, you're able to travel to other places in the world, like let's say, Uh, You're about to go visit New York and you want to passport there beforehand to set up some dates or some, you know, meetups or whatever it is. That's an example of Tinder Plus functionality. How do you measure growth at Tinder? 
Great question. And actually, I, I should add in, we on the revenue point, we're testing uh, and currently have advertising as well. Um, so we're integrated with an ad exchange and we're serving up native advertisements to non-Tinder Plus users. And then can you repeat your last question real quick? So I was going to ask you how you measure growth, but I'd actually like yeah. to interject a little bit of question here because, sure. you know, there's a couple analogies to Tinder's multifaceted business model. And the, the closest one that I think of is is LinkedIn. So when you look in, into LinkedIn's mm -hmm. revenues, they have three or four substantial revenue streams. They have recruiters, mm -hmm. they have subscriptions from premium users, like if you're a job seeker, and they also mm -hmm. have advertising. And there are some ways in which a multifaceted revenue stream is helpful. There are other ways in which it can be a distraction. So if you contrast that with Facebook or Google, mm -hmm. they have a central revenue stream that is an enormous cash cow. And the disadvantage of that is that's their only leg to stand on. But the advantage of it is that they can focus all of their revenue growth efforts on optimizing that waterfall of a channel. And then they can just do free stuff to essentially drive more people to the top of the funnel or just to be noble benefactors, I think, in the case of Google, because their revenue stream makes so much money. And the only reason I bring this topic up is because when you have multiple revenue streams, I imagine it can create a little confusion around which area of the business to try to grow. So, you know, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm just te trying to tee you up totally. for, a, for a conversation for, I guess, what are the key metrics that you focus on? I think that's a great point. So I can tell you, my personal belief is that a company should focus on its core value proposition. And ideally, its monetization efforts should stem from that core value proposition. And I do agree that having these multiple channels basically dilutes the amount of mindshare that the people who are thinking about growth in revenue or users, it basically dilutes their attention across these multiple streams. So my, my personal belief is actually that I think that focused single pillar really aligns um, the entire team around what exactly are we trying to grow. That being said, I think uh, so far, based on my experience at Tinder, it is viable and the tension point often comes for us around allocation of resources because we basically, you know, there's a finite amount of time that we can spend building our product. And so do we allocate that to advertising? Do we allocate it to Tinder Plus? And then it's interesting because even within Tinder Plus, this line that Tinder walks is a, is a very fine balance. It's pretty rare, I think, for social applications to charge a subscription of their you know, regular users. LinkedIn is a great example where they charge subscriptions from salespeople and recruiters, like you said. Tinder, you know, we're basically charging people to help them like build meaningful connections with, with people around them. So even that line of monetizing our user base as opposed to going all in on advertising is a very delicate one for Tinder. And every revenue feature that we've introduced into the application, there's been a huge you know, like conversation around what is the impact of this monetization feature on the ecosystem? Because the percentage of Tinder users that actually pay for Tinder Plus is pretty small. Um, Tinder's user base is so large that it's a very substantial number of users. But we basically need to make sure you know, we're giving these users like certain power user uh, functionalities. And so we really need to think through what does that do to key metrics? Like, let's say swipe right volume, swipe left volume, match rate, conversations. We have a lot of key metrics internally that we basically use to track the user funnel. And so anytime we introduce a feature, particularly revenue, we really have to think through like, what is the, what is the net six month result of this? You did touch on some metrics there. Yep. Maybe you could talk about how you think about growth engineering, because it seems like if you assigned a specific metric to a, to a single engineer and you said, hey, I want you to grow match volume or so, something like that, right. it could create perverse incentives for that engineer. So, yep. But I can think of other, other times where maybe you do want to have assign a single key metric to an engineer, but maybe you could just describe to me your framework for how you Absolutely. set set up the people in your organization or how you set up yourself for success, for measurable success. 
Absolutely. Completely. So at the very top line, we look at monthly active users. Um, and so that's really the primary goal of the growth team is growing our monthly active user base. Tinder happens to have a, a weekly usage cycle. Um, people will you know, log on on Thursday trying to set up dates for Friday or Saturday. They'll also log in on Sunday at the end of the weekend to kind of meet new people because they, they're coming off of like a social you know, mood. <clears throat> so basically, we look primarily at MAO, monthly active users, and WOW, weekly active users. Um, the third is daily active users, but we don't think that's as good of an indication of you know, the long-term health of the company. We do also look at revenue. Um, we actually have a separate team dedicated entirely to revenue features um, because that is such a substantial amount of functionality within the application. So my team, which is about 30 engineers, uh, it's gone through a huge amount of growth in the last year. It was you know three engineers in 2016. Now it's 30 and growing. My team is oriented around KPIs, like you said. So the, the framework that we're building towards is basically having a feature team, which is a cross-functional team of engineers, iOS, Android, backend, and a designer and product manager, having basically four teams, each dedicated to one of the key levers of growing our monthly active user base. And those four key levers match um, what we've identified is the primary user lifecycle within Tinder. And so that is, uh, at the very top, user acquisition. So this basically means how do we increase our downloads and registrations? That feeds the funnel. The next stage of the user lifecycle is activation. So great, someone downloaded the app and they registered. Now, how do we retain this user and turn them into a monthly active user? It turns out that within Tinder, uh, having a conversation is a huge indicator as to whether or not a user will retain. Because if you have a conversation with a new person on Tinder, that's really the magic moment of Tinder. You very likely just met someone who changed your life either in a small way or in an extremely meaningful way. The third part of our growth uh, framework is re-engagement. So that basically means within, within our user base, you know, we have millions of users that have signed up. Some of those users naturally uh, stop using the platform. So basically they've become dormant. And so we use push notifications primarily for re-engaging those users and turning them back into active users. And then the last uh, part of that is retention. And so this basically means preventing users from churning, either through becoming dormant, which means they still have the app, but they've just stopped using it, or deleting their account. Uh, so there's you know a, a large number of people who delete their account every day, and we have people on our team who focus entirely on understanding why is it you're deleting your account? Uh, we ask them, and you know, there's reasons ranging from I met somebody, which is a completely valid response. You know, you're using Tinder to meet someone, you end up in a relationship. Totally natural. You're going to stop using Tinder. Uh, we actually embrace that because we believe that those people turn into word of mouth referrals. But there are other reasons. You know, there's bugs. Maybe you're not getting recommendations that you like. Maybe you're not matching with your recommendations. Maybe you're not having enough conversations. There's quite a few reasons why you might stop using Tinder. So that you that's the overall framework. Yeah. Right. So you described the four areas that your 30 engineer growth engineering team are focused on. You've got Correct. top of the funnel, top of the funnel, people just coming into Tinder. You've got activation, which is maybe people who came in, they had a lukewarm response, but they've still got the app. Mm -hmm. You want to react, mm -hmm. you want to activate them. You want to get them engaged somehow. You've right. got re-engagement, which I guess is people who have downloaded the app, they've used it a little bit, and then they dropped off and you want to re-engage them somehow. And then, or, or were those are those people who have actually uninstalled the app or those are just, they've disengaged? They are users who have disengaged and were previously active. Okay, and got so it. It's and it's a common pattern within Tinder that, you know, it takes a lot of work to, to swipe and match and converse. And so eventually after a month, you might, you might stop doing so. Right, and so the fourth one is actually preventing churn, preventing people from actually uninstalling and completely disengaging. Did I did I capture those four areas correctly? You did. And there's okay. actually a fifth that I can oh, touch okay. upon that yeah, is go ahead. very very unique to Tinder, a little bit because of just the way things have shaped up, but I actually love this. Um, so our team also does anti-spam. Uh, so we have six engineers dedicated entirely to preventing spam on the system. And the reason why I think this is interesting and actually natural within a growth team is that it really aligns the incentive of the growth team to not only bring in 
new users, but to bring in legitimate, you know, good users for the ecosystem. So that team is called Protect and Care, and they basically protect against both spam, which is a pretty large problem for all internet scale companies, and bad behavior. Have you guys talked to Smite? Smite? No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's it's a it's a company that works against bad actors. It's a, a friend of mine runs it, uh, Pete Hunt. It's uh, it's a great company. I, I recommend checking it out. For I mean, I, they they're just really good at preventing bad actors. But um, I'll uh, maybe I'll, we'll we can talk about that offline. That spam stuff is a huge problem. I've talked to Pete about that because there are social networks where, uh, and actually specifically the dating scam problem mm-hmm. where. You get matched with somebody, and they're so attractive, and they yep. like manga, just like you like manga, <laughs> and you guys both like boba tea, and yep. they want to go on a date with you, but they just need $300 to yep. make it across town because they have a train that they ride that happens to take $300, and it's yep. only, you know, they only accept Bitcoin on this train, so... <laughs> Um, this is actually like a significant problem on platforms like Tinder. It's huge. It is genuinely huge. And that's what you just described is, is, you know, manual. That's somebody on the other end attempting to defraud somebody out of their money. Tinder, because it's such a large and widely used platform, also has a significant amount of automated spam. Um, and so those are programs that are written basically to, you know, like you said, create a beautiful account. Um, it's predominantly female accounts trying to match with men the man match with them and pretty quickly the um, this bot has a conversation with the user and will send a link. It always boils down to a link because they're trying to get the user off of Tinder, enter a credit card, and they make money off of you know referral bonuses to adult websites. They make money off of pure credit card fraud, capturing credit cards. It, it's a substantial problem um, for, I think, all social networks. And uh, so we have a team formed entirely around just you know handling that. Now, the question I wanted to ask you is... What are the tensions between those five different metrics? What are the knobs that, when you tune them to increase or or to decrease churn, for example, mm-hmm. does that sometimes have a tension with re-engagement, for example? Yeah. You know, the primary tension that comes to mind is almost a really abstract one, which is that a growth team's job is to basically increase the addictiveness of the application, right? And so we have to walk a fine line around introducing new features that might not be on the surface great for the user experience, you know? But basically the the, the model that I ascribe to is that a growth team's job is to uh, basically get the user to the core value of the application sooner and more frequently. And so that's kind of like a main tension we walk is, you know, we, these, these things we're doing, we have to really ask ourselves, is this, is this what we want as a user? Like everyone talks about how addictive social networks are now. That's because Facebook, Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, all these other applications, uh, Snapchat, they have growth teams that are like literally working to make the application more addictive. As far as between the individual knobs, there's not, I wouldn't say there's inherent tension between the, these key metrics that we're trying to drive themselves. The tension we run into is almost what you referred to in the beginning, which is having engineers dedicated entirely to these sole KPIs um, is great for focus. It basically means you have a brilliant person working over the course of a year to move this extremely important lever, right? The thing is that you know this framework is pretty good, but there is overlap between these. And so what we need to do is make sure that we have a team that even though these sub-teams are focused on core metrics, the overall growth team needs to be aligned and um, there needs to be a really good rapport between each of these individual teams because, you know, one team might have an idea that, you know, kind of spreads into like the next KPI and you have to make sure that the people on the team are, are aligned as a team and, you know, they work together well. Let's go back to that point you made about the addictive nature. Some people yep. call these dark patterns. Yep. You've got, have you, are you familiar with Tristan Harris? Mm. No, I don't think so. Is is this guy who's been talking a lot about this addiction issue. He was a Google product manager. He started Mm -hmm. a nonprofit called Time Well Spent. I think he has (laughs) a TED TED Talk. He was on Sam Harris's podcast talking about technology addiction. And there's a lot, there's a lot he says that I don't really agree with, but uh, he does make, he does paint a detailed picture about 
how the addictive nature of these products develops, how they become more addictive over time, sometimes because of the uh, in the well, the unfortunate incentives that exist within a growth team at a company like Facebook or Snapchat mm-hmm. or potentially Tinder. But tell me, tell me how you think about those, because like you can, yeah. I think so. I think the thing about dark patterns. Let's say a dark pattern makes you more addicted to Tinder, and so you're using Tinder more, and then you find the love of your life. In that, exactly. in that sense, the dark pattern was beneficial for you. Exactly. Other times, you the dark pattern gets you engaged with Tinder. You're swiping right. It's 4 a.m. You realize you've been swiping <laughs> right for six hours. Yep. Uh, you had no meaningful matches. That seems like not uh, great. Some, it's not great. Yeah. No. So totally. Yeah, so, how do you think about that? You know, I'm 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 pretty happy working for Tinder because I personally um, have experienced like the magic of meeting people who change your life. You know, there's more than a if you go to TED and you look up talks on the happy you know meaning of happiness, I'd say like ninety percent of them are about interpersonal connections and meeting people. Um, so I'm thankful to have to work on this problem at Tinder where I do believe that we are actually doing a good thing, basically introducing people to more people. Um, They might change your political beliefs. Um, You might be exposed to people you didn't expect. I would say that hopefully it reduces things like racism and other discrimination because you're exposed to, again, more people. You might meet the love of your life. I've personally met um, professional contacts. I've met people that I play tennis with. Basically, my belief is that, again, growth boils down to introducing users to the core value of the product sooner and frequently. And so it really... The question is, what is the core value of that of that product? For Facebook, I don't get as good of a feeling. I, I generally don't feel great after browsing my newsfeed for for you know twenty minutes. But at the same time, like I love being connected with people that I've met throughout my life. I eventually you know met someone on Tinder, connected them on Facebook, and they turn into a lasting connection. So yeah, I I, I tend to think you know hopefully the the base use of most of these applications is good. I also think that there is. In the long term, I do believe that it's up to people to basically, you know, form enough mental discipline to be able to disconnect from these applications. If you're not able to control your own, you know, social media addiction, then that's something that I think people should work on. And ideally, that's something that we also call out more within society as something that needs to be worked on. That's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. And that's actually the exact issue that I take with Tristan's perspective Although I I am probably not casting him entirely correctly, I think he he mm. you know he, it's one of the things he talks about. I think is age limitations. Like maybe you know if you're mm. under eighteen, uh, right. an app can't exploit you through certain growth tactics. But right. uh, anyway, I need I need to get him on the show. <laughs> so we've talked about at this point what a growth team does, how you think about KPIs, how you think about your framework. Let's get into the actual engineering side of things and the data side yep. of things. So from your management point of view, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis and what are your engineers doing? Great question. So my team, as far as composition goes, is, like I mentioned, cross-functional. I think that's extremely important because it enables the growth team to take an idea from inception all the way through shipping. We even have data scientists on our team who are like Caltech machine learning people who basically act as advisors for all of our feature teams for how do we identify big wins and how do we apply advanced strategies like machine learning to these growth problems. And then let's see, from the management perspective, so my job is really to identify the big wins. And I would say for anybody leading a growth team, growth, growth engineering, whatever it is, it's a, you need a different character than, let's say, a backend platform team. So my background is in entrepreneurship. I've done, I've led marketing teams, I've led sales teams, I've led engineering teams. And, you know, because of that experience, I'm able to basically prioritize more effectively, I think. And so my job is very much identifying what should the gro- growth team be working on? How do we have big wins? How do we cut through all of the noise? It's really easy for companies and teams to, you know, have activity, but not necessarily actually build things that really matter. So it's my job to identify those things. And then I have uh, really good leaders on the team who are, you know, at Tinder, engineering managers are typically also project managers. And so they're the ones that, 
you know, we get an idea, we think through it, and then between the product manager and the engineering manager, we basically do what it takes to get it out. Specs, building, QA, things like that. Measuring after the fact. Can you take me to through the life cycle of a growth engineering initiative you worked on recently? Is there a specific initiative, like a uh, even if it's the color of a button that you changed or the, just the yeah. change in a screen? Yeah, definitely. I, I have a good example. Um, so right now, we are testing adding a deactivate feature to the application. So basically, rather than deleting your account, you may want to deactivate it. Let's say you know, you have finals coming up and so you kind of want to like cut off your Tinder usage and so you'll deactivate your account, but you might not want to actually delete it because then you lose all of your matches, all of your swipe history, your profile, et cetera. Um, this is common for, for most, most other social applications like Facebook. This was like a two-month nice little growth project where basically myself and uh, a director of product had identified this as a, you know, a potentially high-impact good growth feature. And I think it's, you know, very representative of growth features in that it's not particularly sexy. You know, it's not like a beautiful UI, but it is a key lever within the application. And so from there, we then have a meeting between the engineering manager on the product, on the project, and then the designer and the product manager. And we'll usually invite the whole engineering team. Each of our engineering teams are like five engineers. And again, a part of growth, I think, is having the engineers deeply involved with product from the very beginning of the project. So oftentimes they're even involved in like brainstorming and saying, hey, what should we build next? It's a very um, collaborative effort between product and engineering. From there, um, once we have like a good spec, we use Confluence, you know, so we'll document like this is what the feature is supposed to do. Usually the product manager drives that effort and then the engineering manager is refining it. Once we have the spec, we'll then give estimates, uh, the engineering manager will, on how long we expect this to take. And then pretty quickly, we move into development. We usually try to build the backend before the clients um, so that we have stub APIs up that the clients can consume. Usually makes development just a little bit faster. Once we're done, kind of unique to Tinder and some other companies, is that we don't have a dedicated QA team. And I personally love this from like an engineering management perspective. Our growth team is very much empowered and kind of accountable for their own quality. So we often do testathons where we'll get the product manager, the designer, the engineering team all in a room together for two hours, and we'll run through the acceptance criteria all testing the application. I love this because it really puts the responsibility for quality into the hands of the engineers. And then also testing side by side with the product manager kind of like bonds the team together. And then having backend engineers test the Android application really gives them like a full view of like the entire system, right? And then we will ship the feature eventually, usually behind some feature gate. We'll, you know, ship it to like a 5% variant of our user base. We'll have like a control group. And then a few weeks after shipping, we work with our data analyst team. So Tinder has like a 10-person data analyst team, statisticians, et cetera, statisticians. And they basically work with us to identify what exactly was the impact of this test. Most, most things are phrased as tests. And should we roll it out to the entire user base? The deactivate button, which yep. of the four KPIs or, or I guess high-level growth segments among... Yep. Uh, you know, reactivation and tension, or I can't remember the all four of them. Of yep. the four teams, which one did it impact the most? That was driven by the retention team. Um, okay. And so the idea is, you know, we have a certain number of users deleting their accounts every day. Let's And we, we see that a significant number of those users are recreating their accounts shortly after. That's kind of the opportunity. And so let's, let's, you know, introduce this ability to deactivate your account, maybe remove the ability to delete your account from the application and put it in the web. And then that should increase the retention of our users. Okay. Makes sense. So do you need to A-B test this in order to get a valid test? Yeah, we do. Uh, definitely. Because we need to, uh, we A-B test pretty much everything. This test in particular has four variants, um, basically testing different combinations of there's deactivate, there's deactivate and delete. There's nothing, and we basically need to observe what is the impact of each of these potential paths forward on the user experience. Um, this is a great example of something where we we believe that this is actually good for the users. We believe that retaining your profile on Tinder is a good thing, but we want to make sure that there's no you know uh, qualitative pushback from the user base. We want to make sure there's no quantitative impact on the metrics that we track for the user lifecycle. So how do you facilitate that A-B test? Because I know yep. mobile deployments can 
make A-B testing kind of tricky because mobile deployments, you deploy a binary, just a huge binary that you upload to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store. Yeah. doesn't make it easy to A-B test. Yeah. So we use LeanPlum, uh, which is one of the, you know, like three good softwares for, in my opinion, client-side A-B testing. And we'll set up the experiments in that software. It's basically a, it's a SaaS software where you can set up experiments. Uh, you can also send push notifications and A-B test push notifications through it. And basically, each time the client opens, um, we've written code to sync the user's profile with the test groups that they should be in. And then the application is programmed in such a way that it responds. So basically, we have a lot of feature gates throughout our entire application that turn on and off certain features for different users based on their lean plum settings. Okay, that makes sense. I imagine you could also use React Native for this. Do you use React Native in your mobile apps? No, we don't. We use Swift on iOS and we use Kotlin on Android, which is kind of like a new exciting language in the Android ecosystem. We, I think React Native may make it a little bit easier, but at the end of the day, you're still going to need feature gates. You're still going to have some code that's triggered right. based on these flags. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. How can you talk more about your continuous integration system? Your, yeah. uh, your, because I think that overlaps with your feature gating system. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Tinder's gone through like a really exciting kind of transformation in the last year or so. We have new engineering leadership. Our engineering team is like tripled in size. And we've really focused on continuous integration as a part of like scaling up our engineering team. So each platform has its own CI. On the client applications, we use either, gosh, what is it? So we use Jenkins on iOS. And then we use, I'm forgetting the word. God, there's, a, there's like a cloud SaaS platform that we use on Android. That's a very, very widely used one. But basically, this you know each of these like build pipelines, build the binary, and then run through a set of of integration tests, basically. And then on PR, we also use both those softwares to run unit tests. I'd say seventy five or maybe even like eighty or ninety percent of our tests are unit tests on the clients. We have relatively few integration or is different words for it, but like UI tests, end to end tests, basically. Tests that are written to say, you know, user does this functionality, they press this button, does this button show up in the right place type of thing. Most of our tests are unit tests testing like pure logic within the applications. Um, this is pretty hard stuff though. I got to say like we've been a lot of smart people working on what is the most efficient way to test our mobile applications. Um, there's a lot of different like trains of thoughts, but um, I, I typically would recommend starting with unit tests across all platforms. Well, and then... Yeah. The, the the UI tests are so much harder to do where you have to yeah, do totally. something like I've seen these platforms for UI testing and they're they're pretty cool. I want to do a show on one of them, but pretty hard. Like, you know, you're you're taking a, a screen grab and then yep. you're validating that things are in the right place. That's a lot harder than validating that you swipe right on something and a database entry changes to the right thing. Right. Yeah. I think the two primary problems with these UI tests are they're slow, much slower to run because um, you need to spin up an emulator of the application. And then they're also brittle. Um, so if you, you know, it's pretty easy to break them if like you change your UI a little bit, maybe you have an AB test running, whatever it is. Right. And then the integration test doesn't pass and then you go and inspect yeah. it and maybe you try to recreate it manually and you say, wow, yeah. well, this works from my point of view. And then you run it back through continuous integration and it fails again because the UI test is yeah. brittle, like you said. And yep. then you're like, I don't even know what to do. Should I just take out the UI tests altogether? So, so that makes sense. How is the... So I guess, yeah, unit test coverage, not so hard to do, especially in an app right. like Tinder. It's not not right. too much. I imagine there's not too much crazy, unanticipated functionality going on. Uh, you would be amazed. <laughs> mm, okay. All right. Tell me about it. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, when you get into like all of the different cross sections of the app, I think complexity comes from having like layers of functionality. So basically, when you get into the application, the actual code powering our card stack, our messaging application, our profile editing, things like that, all the settings layered on top of that is all of our Tinder Plus functionality. So you basically have this like gate saying some users can do these things, other, other users can do these things. And you end up with like almost like combinatorial like permutations as to like what these users can do. So one of the things, you know, uh, you know, Tinder's not like the largest application in the world, but it's definitely a surprise for most people coming in that, oh, wow, it's actually like a pretty large, complicated application. And then our, our back end, I just wanted to touch upon, we have, that's a little bit smoother and well full-formed where we basically have 
unit tests. Um, all three platforms have acceptance criteria for unit test coverage. So on the back end, for example, you can't check in code unless the unit test coverage percentage has gone up, which means that we are continually raising wow. um, raising the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's because, you know, we started at a pretty low percentage. And so we had to figure out how do we over time get the team closer to like a healthy 80% coverage mark. And so basically the idea is every single code um, check-in has to raise the bar. And you strictly enforce that? Strictly enforce it. Yeah. Extremely wow. few um, exceptions. Yeah. Which means that if you introduce a bunch of code without unit tests, or if you remove a bunch of code that had unit tests, you need to write some. (laughs) Well, that's a great policy. I I think that's a perfect policy for a product like Tinder, where the core offering of Tinder is so useful and so valuable that Mm -hmm. you're just going to continue to grow, and you want to keep it stable. You want to keep things going well. You're not in a situation where you need to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. You're in a position where you need to batten down the hatches. You need to exactly. make sure performance is good and improving. And one way to do that is to be strict about people increasing their unit test coverage and not accepting pull requests if the unit test coverage has not improved. Totally. Yeah, quality has pretty much been a mantra for the last year or so um, because Tinder... Like you said, it's scaled. I'll say a huge focus right now from growth and just general engineering is international. I think it's actually one of the biggest competitive advantages Tinder has is that we have a substantial adoption rate internationally, um, which is kind of unique for a lot of like tech companies. And we didn't really focus on it. It just kind of organically happened. But the reason why it's so competitively great for Tinder is that a lot of people use it when they're traveling because that's that's the time when you really want to be meeting new people, right? Mm. So it's a single application where you can basically say, I am going to Argentina, I'm going to Russia, I'm going to Japan. We have user bases in all of those countries. And so when you go, you're able to passport beforehand or you land in Japan and then you start swiping and you're able to actually meet people to you know stay with or to just meet up for dinner or drinks or to give you a tour around the area people are i recently did this i went from la to new york and i had you know dates and like hangouts set up for all four days that i was there within three hours <laughs> and so it, it's pretty amazing but from the engineering perspective that is a huge challenge because tinder as such a you know it's been around for four years maybe almost five at this point um, that's an extremely early stage. The company's like 230 people. That's It's very difficult for an engineering team to scale to millions of users internationally and to maintain its performance in countries like India, Japan, Russia, et cetera. So it's, it's a huge challenge. And the way we get through that, we focus on quality. I mean, like internally, like the company, all engineers focused on quality. Well, it's so interesting to hear that the markets are not balkanized. You don't have the Tinder. Well, I mean, I'm sure you do have the Tinder for India in India, mm-hmm. but you're describing a reason why the Tinder for India is Tinder. And, yep. you know, we're seeing the same questions arise in the ride-sharing market. Is there an Uber for China? Yes, there is. Is there an Uber for India? Yes, there is. Because right. there's the question of, is there really an advantage to having a global Uber? Maybe, maybe not. But you certainly just described a network effect that makes complete sense for me. I want to get into data because data is going to drive how you measure the outcomes of these changes that you're going to make to the Tinder application. And it's also going to drive insights to, to deciding what features to build. How does data science and data engineering fit in with growth? Great question. So at Tinder, we have three data-oriented teams. Uh, we have a data analytics team, basically business analysts who are you know running SQL queries, creating dashboards, things like that. We have a data engineering team, uh, which is a team of about, I think, eight or 10 engineers. And in the last year, they completely rebuilt our data pipeline. You can imagine as you're using Tinder, the app is sending off billions of events, telemetry basically, on how people are using the application. So that is that is the backbone of how we analyze whether or not a feature is successful. And the, the pipeline for processing all of these, those events and making them available for features, making them available for analysis, that's some heavy-duty engineering. Um, and then we have a data science team, which is our highest concentration of PhDs in the company. And these are the guys 
and gals that are working on our recommendation algorithm. Um, and they're basically working on applying AI, NLP, language processing, machine learning, et cetera, to various features within Tinder. So when we're measuring, we're primarily working with the data analyst team to draw insights out of the data that our data engineering team has you know, facilitated getting plopped into our backend systems. You know, I, I I would love to, if we had time to dive into data engineering, but I don't think we have time. So I want to assume that the data engineering pipeline works. It gets it me the data I need if I can ask the right questions. <laughs> yep. Key, so, key, keynote, yeah. <laughs> so why don't you talk about the, give a little bit more color into like the interaction between the growth team and the data science team. For example... If I'm on the growth team and I want to surface insights about the user behavior that is going on in Tinder, do I need to do I need to know what question to ask or is there some set of dashboards, is there some set of visualizations that I can just go and I can look at and that's going to give me ideas for what growth metrics to tune? That is a great question. And I expect this might be the largest or one of the top three challenges for any growth team in any company. And I don't think you can ever completely solve it. So within Tinder, we we have a set of dashboards. We use Periscope for basically turning SQL queries into pretty dashboards. And right now we are going through an effort to standardize the set of dashboards that we look at as the source of truth for the key stages in the user lifecycle. Currently, I think my team has maybe 40 or 50 different like pages of dashboards filled with graphs, ranging from engineering-oriented ones to make sure that, like, let's say, our authentication system is working correctly, all the way to you know more business-oriented ones, which are measuring the conversion rate of a user who swipes, a user who has a conversation, etc. And so it's a challenge because if you don't have a source of truth of your metrics, then it's very difficult to create alignment between um, the various teams. And I would say asking the right question is like the hardest part of data analysis, I think. We do have a data analyst team where basically, you know, when we want to figure something out, we'll, we'll submit a JIRA query. We, we use JIRA, the ticket tracking system. And basically, we're able to create a ticket that has a template and basically say, uh, you know, first question is like, what are you trying to figure out? And then the second question is, what business impact does that have? And it's very like high level questions that the data analyst teams want us to fill out. And then from there, a data analyst will be assigned to that question and they will figure out the best way to like actually figure it out. In my experience though, I urge all of the engineers on my team, the product managers um, that we work with, et cetera, mm-hmm. to basically, you have to figure out like how to ask the question that you want to ask. And that's that's kind of like the, the whole thing of a growth team is that it has to be pretty cross-functional, which means that the engineers that thrive are the ones who understand how the application works what the key business levers are, et cetera, because they need to bring that to bear on having impact, basically. Well, so you mentioned Periscope data there, and Periscope is one of these tools that is in the Looker, Tableau family of business intelligence, dashboarding tools. I think that this brand of dashboarding tools came out of the the really painful period that we had in software engineering where if you are a product manager and you wanted to, to get a, quote, big data query from the, quote, big data team or the data warehousing team, you had to go and ask the data warehousing person to run your Hadoop query. And that right. would take a long time. And it was really painful. So you yeah. you would have these people working the Hadoop clusters and they've always always got like a you know long backlog of requests and so there was this family of of companies that developed around trying to make that a little bit easier and I think Periscope data I think what what people talk about I'm I'm actually doing an interview with them a little bit later this week but what people talk about with them is it's just the query language is really good so it's almost so good that the if you had a growth engineer or a product manager, even if they don't, if even if they're not great at SQL, they can just kind of cobble together their own queries and they can yeah. get get the information that they want. It sounds like it's not that turnkey because you, you at Tinder at least because you still have to 
maybe sometimes ask a, you have to file a Jira ticket to have a data analyst make that query for you. Although on the bright side, once you have that query written, it just stands there and constantly updates the dashboard and you don't have to write the same query twice. And then you've got this, this library of 50 dashboards that you can look through over time. Do you see that changing? Do you see it getting to a place where everybody who is even remotely technical in the organization can just can ask their own questions without having to file a ticket? I, I hope so. So the, the two primary blockers to that are, um, first of all, data access. So Tinder is owned by a publicly traded company, which means that we do have metrics that are considered basically insider knowledge, right? And so there's a lot of questions internally because Tinder is such a, a young company around what is our policy? Are we full transparency? Is that possible? Is it possible to give all engineers that need access to these metrics access? Currently, we do have rules in place where you know certain very sensitive metrics are only available to certain people. The second part is performance. So, you know, we put all of our data in Redshift. And if you have a thousand dashboards hammering these, these key tables, um, depending on your, your schema, it might get pretty slow. And we see this at peak times during the day when we have all these dashboards loading, they, they take quite a while to load. And so those, those two points are, you know, a point towards having a centralized data analyst team. I personally really do hope, and I, I believe in distributing that, decentralizing. I believe that basically engineers should not only be empowered to figure out what the key levers are, they should almost be held accountable for it. Because I think that's a great thing in an engineer's career. Whether or not an engineer realizes it, they are choosing what they work on. And there's a huge difference if you choose projects that are impactful versus if you're continually working on projects that kind of you know don't really succeed particularly well, you will see a difference in your career trajectory. So I, I choose to like address that up front and I urge all of my engineers to, to you know kind of extend beyond just engineering and to figure out what where the impact is. Are there any other lessons in psychology and sociology that you've learned from working within Tinder? Let's see. I, my general advice to people on Tinder, and I think this applies to life is, and I've, I've really seen this by observing like what happens on Tinder is that it it takes a lot of swipes, it takes a lot of matches, and it takes a lot of conversations mm. to meet someone meaningful. And I see a lot of people take that personally. And I think that's kind of a life lesson, right? Where basically like people feel like, you know, this girl, those girls, this guy, that guy isn't responding to me. And that's a reflection on me. Whereas having seen the data, it is absolutely not a reflection on you as a person. Um, there is no fundamental truth around like attractiveness um, or anything like that. It's just that certain people drive well, they have a connection, they have chemistry, and certain people don't. And so it's a huge challenge for Tinder. There are commonalities. Um, people have, uh, they're attracted to certain things that are represented that we're able to analyze with like computer vision, for example. But I think people should approach applications like Tinder and honestly meeting people in general with a certain dose of like, you know, it's it's a numbers game a lot of the time. Just meet enough people and kind of have like confidence that you are worthy as an individual and everything will work out. And you have to put yourself out there enough. Hmm. Well, what kind of computer vision stuff are you talking about there? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Tinder is a very visual application. Basically, you're, you're presented with a, a stack of people who have chosen their photos. And you can imagine that there's we're working on things that are pretty interesting around identifying like some people really like outdoorsy people. Some people really like people with pets, people, some people like tall, dark, and handsome. Some people like blondes, et cetera. People like people in suits, things like that. And so it's, it's pretty interesting drawing out like for certain people that you're able to, to kind of identify what type of people they would like to see based on their previous swipe patterns. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work being done. Like I mentioned within Tinder, we now have a data science team. And so we're looking at, incorporating that that analysis that computer vision that basically you qual you you categorize an image as to like you can boil down an image to like the the specific categories that it fits into and then you can feed that into the person's recommendation system these recommendation systems they still have so such a long way to go like i oh yeah it's like I use Spotify and I'm still just like you guys are just not getting it right <laughs> like you, you still can't give me totally the, the magical experience of just pressing play and hearing exactly what I want to hear right now, which is yeah. like such an entitled uh, thing to say, but <laughs> it's fair. But it's, oh, what'd you say? It, it is fair. Cause I think it is possible. It just takes, you know, exactly. we haven't, 
these recommendation systems haven't been in development for all that long. Um, and I think the industry overall is is moving. You know, if, you, if you're not in the industry year by year, you're out of date within a year, 18 months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know the same is true with with YouTube and you know I imagine right. you know Google Google search even like feel it feels pretty magical but I'm sure in oh, another yeah. 10 years it'll be even more magical. Uh, yep. and that's in some sense a recommendation system at this point since it's so tailored to your personal totally. personal preferences. So wrapping up, let's just talk a little bit about broader engineering topics. So you were just an engineering manager, why did you switch to focus on growth? Yeah, definitely. I actually joined Tinder as a senior backend engineer. Um, so I, I joined kind of intentionally as like a individual contributor. I wanted to, I recommend this for, for most managers joining companies, even if it's not official, to join as an engineer, be in the trenches, so to speak. Because I think if you join as an engineering leader and you haven't actually done the work at a company, each company, each environment has different challenges for the engineers. Um, and you know, there's some there's some similarities across companies, but you really need to understand what are the blockers that your engineers are going to face. So yeah, senior back in engineer, and then I became an engineering manager. And that was basically, you know, I was an engineering manager building Tinder's authentication, user creation, and onboarding systems. Over time, I, because I come from an entrepreneurial background, I wanted to expand my scope to include more of like, you know, Tinder's a great company, huge opportunity. It has scale. Let's do things that matter. Um, so I basically championed to to create this growth engineering team, and then it was it was built around like that idea. And final question: I'm I'm just curious about the difference between building a software company in L.A. and building one yeah. in San Francisco. Have you talked to many people about the differences there? I, I think I was looking at your profile. I don't think you've ever lived in San Francisco, but you've lived in a lot of different places. I'm yep. sure you have an, a perspective. I'm sure you've spent time in San Francisco, so you probably have some perspective for how software goes here. What's it like building a software company in LA? What's unique about it? Yeah, definitely. I actually I have lived in San Jose, Redwood City, Bernal Heights. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Yeah, so I, I pretty oh, well my mistake. To, no, totally fine. And then Tinder actually, I mean, to get to the point, Tinder opened a Palo Alto office because we did need to scale our engineering team with such high caliber so mm. quickly that really, you know, it was basically necessary to open um, a satellite office up there, in my opinion. Um, and it, it's worked great. It does present challenges because you need to, you know, collaborate um, between offices, which is hard for a small team, but it's going pretty well. LA at this point, having been in this this industry for a while, has changed dramatically in the last five or six years. I'd say because there are companies in Los Angeles like Snapchat, for example, there's a lot more talent being imported into the city. And I would expect pretty substantial like um, reverberations from that in the next three to four years as you know people will naturally leave companies like snapchat tinder rubicon project hulu is down here riot games is a huge huge um, software like high caliber software engineer employer down here all these companies have really scaled in the last like you know two to four years so it's going through a pretty dramatic change that i think is you know probably relatively reflected in like new york city as well seattle yeah, I, I'm from Austin. I'm still waiting for that to happen in Austin. We, I, there hasn't really been a giant. I mean, there was home away, but there hasn't really been a giant exit in in software companies in Austin. I'm really waiting for it because that's going to be the start of an ecosystem. But until then, I uh, yep. that's why I'm not living in Austin and not build not trying to build a company. <laughs> Anyway, Alex, yep. I know we're up against time. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting conversation. Tinder's a great product. I've used it before. I was one of the nice. people that turned out, but great product. I, I, there's a chance. <laughs> we'll get you I, you know, yeah, you'll get me back, I'm sure. Maybe I'll use it to find a co-founder or something. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally viable. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Cool. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me.